Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Our Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Baran. So, in in my my free time, and well, not in my free time, but in my regular life as as a researcher, as a consultant, um, among the the many hats I wear, um, I'm absolutely fascinated with artisanal and small scale mining. And I, I had the absolute pleasure uh, last December of being able to go visit Liberia, which, which for those of you who don't know, Liberia is a, a small country, about 7 million people, that is on uh, the, the West African coast, uh, situated between Sierra Leone, Guinea, um, and a few other of the, the West African Francophile countries. Uh, but anyway, anyway, so uh, I was in Liberia to consult for a great nonprofit called Diamonds for Peace. And it was it was my first time ever uh, mining diamonds, and it was it was an absolutely fascinating experience. But something that that struck me about that trip was while while teaching these these artisanal miners, and and keep in mind these artisanal miners they're they're living day to day, they're living by by the absolute um, they're living without much. Uh, the the village we were in is literally at the end of the road the road ends in in their village and there's no electricity um, they recently got uh, public toilets there's there's very very little and so I was I was absolutely amazed um, we went through a wide variety of, of different types of, of mining training, health and safety, mineral processing, exploration, prospecting, etc., etc. We're going through the, the whole life cycle of, of a mine. And it was some some days were harder than others. Some of the trainings were more difficult for the miners to apprehend. Yet what I found truly astonishing was that when we started to do reclamation activities, the miners were on board, which baffled me because for for them, the reclamation activities included filling in their holes, um, and that meant a lot of physical labor of, of manually filling in holes in the ground, and that's time that they're not spending mining diamonds. That's time that's, that's not going back into feeding their families and feeding their communities. And so I was, I was pretty astounded by how rapidly these miners were able to pick up the idea of reclamation. And when questioning and, and trying to understand why, it became clear once the phrase that they felt like they were borrowing earth and during the mining process and, and it was their obligation to return it. Just like you would return a tool to a neighbor they felt it was their obligation to return the, the dirt back to the earth, to return that piece of the earth back to where it came from. And from, from that point forward, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And so after that experience, coming back uh, to the U.S., I've thought a lot about reclamation and, and rehabilitation of mine lands. Um, and so I was absolutely excited to have our, our guest today, Dr. Karine Unger, on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Unger is, is based in Australia, and she has had a great amount of experience working within the Australian context for rehabilitation and reclamation of mine lands. And during the conversation, 
we we speak about the many different influences and complexities of reclaiming mine lands and one thing that truly stuck out to me about our conversation and something that shifted my mindset about how mining functions is that we are truly designing for forever in terms of of the humanity and in our society's existence we're we're designing landforms that are going to persist for more generations than we've had since the the industrial revolution and that's far beyond what we typically think about and i think for a lot of mining engineers it's it doesn't cross their mind i don't think that a mining engineer would ever consider themselves as as designing for forever and designing permanent landforms but yet that's exactly what we're doing and so when considering that it, it puts reclamation and rehabilitation in a new light and understanding that the act of of mining is oftentimes not a a activity that we can reverse it's irreversible um, and understanding how we can plan ahead for making reclamation and rehabilitation activities to be economically feasible as well as provide additional value or at least restore the value of the land um, that that it had prior to mining is is a significant task and it's it's a major challenge that our industry needs to be able to overcome and i i think dr Unger does a great job of sharing how society government and the private the private sector can work together in order to make reclamation rehabilitation something that's that's mutually beneficial for all, all parties and it's certainly not going to be easy it's certainly going to take a lot of work um and and that said that means that there is a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs for innovators uh, for young bright engineers and and others to come into this space and really be able to, to pioneer and be able for the mining industry to be able to shift its legacy from having you know tens of thousands of abandoned mines to being a an environmental steward and being able to to leave our mines and mined lands in a condition that allows them to be reused and so this this episode is, has really been on my mind and I think it will continue to be as I reconsider how rehabilitation and reclamation of mine lands ought to ought to work within the modern context. Um, and I hope I hope that you similarly have a, a redefinition of, of how you perceive reclamation and, and how um, mining affects uh, the environment and the landscape. Um, and with that, I, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. It's a, it's a deep, thought-provoking episode of our resources. Um, and always, I appreciate everyone tuning in and listening to this conversation. And welcome everybody to the R Resources podcast. Today with me is Dr. Corinne Unger. Uh, she's based in uh, Australia, and 
today we're going to have a conversation regarding the derivation and the whole understanding of, of mind reclamation. Um, so, Dr. Aranger, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's good to hear. Uh, so, I, I want to start diving kind of real deep into some of the, the background of, of what we're going to be talking about today, which is, is mine reclamation and, and making sure that we're, we're good stewards of the earth as miners. Um, and so the first topic I wanted to discuss with you is kind of talking about the nexus of the government and the, the private industries, as well as the public. Um, and so the first the first part of this is I would appreciate if you could elaborate on, on your personal views of, of how the government plays or what, what are the roles and responsibilities that a government has within managing their natural resources? Um, so I think fundamentally it's about um, generating revenue to support infrastructure that society needs. So from mining, governments take royalties and rents and, um, and perhaps other sorts of payments, but the idea for that is to fund hospitals, roads, um, the public service to provide services to the public. So... Um, so that's it, like in a nutshell, but obviously there, there are broader issues because of where sort of governments are centred and where mining is carried out. So quite often mining is carried out in more remote and regional areas and the centres of government are somewhere else. Um, and so it's really, um, when we talk about mine reclamation and closure and preparing for the whole life of a mine to eventually close because they are finite resources, then it's this notion of... Uh, intergenerational equity so making sure that the next generation is not disadvantaged by what is done now so clearly um, mm. mining isn't sustainable you know you take the resources they're gone they've been used um, but every other activity about mining can be done in a way that it ensures sustainability in terms of closure design and reclamation and that's what that those activities are geared towards, but it really takes concentrated effort from beginning to end. Okay, so I think I think before I kind of go too deep into the specifics of, of mine reclamation, I kind of want to take a step back mm -hmm. and focus more on on this basic relationship between the government, people, and and their resources. So at the very beginning of your answer, you you said that mining is, is for royalties in order to benefit uh, the public in some way. Um, but I'd love to get your opinion on some of the alternative views of, of how governments should handle natural resources, because it's not and even in Australia's history. There's there's nationalization of companies and there's there's other models that we can rely upon in terms of who's managing the natural resources that, that go beyond the the model that we're used to now of, of having companies having royalties and taxes. Um, so with that, can you just explain kind of your thoughts on how does the government own the resources? Who's, whose resources are they? Mm, they? They are owned by the government in Australia. So I think, I think there's also a difference across the, the country, uh, across the globe. So we can't um, generalize. So some, in some nations, the government is the mine owner. And, um, mm -hmm. and that is quite a different situation. Um, so just speaking from experience in Australia, the governments in each state own the resources in their state. They are not owned by the Australian government. It's Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and so on. So they are the regulator, they are the owner, and then they uh, decide how to exploit them. Um, and the industry, of course, is an able partner who wants to exploit these resources uh, and in some cases, 
areas are offered up for exploration on a tender basis. So there's lots of different ways that um, mining companies come to or exploration companies come to have a lease. But they are always, um, they have leases on them. Sometimes the miner will also own the land, but quite often it is owned by someone else. So there'll be freehold tenure on a parcel of land and a lease is overlaid on it, which allows certain activities and that lease might be adjusted over time to take account of changing dynamics. But in terms of the relationship, you know, you mentioned the public, very important part of um, this triad, as it were, but quite often not, not on an equal footing. So the public does not have a uh, considerable say in a mining development. It's often just a relationship between the mining industry and government. Um, although there are environmental impact studies and uh, approvals processes that uh, will go out for consultation, but there's been numerous studies about the ability, the capacity and the fairness of that process because if you can imagine a whole lot of farmers are busy managing their land and they have to also wade through you know, a massive pile of documents to understand an EIS, there's an imbalance in knowledge and capacity. But So that relationship has to be the public need to be brought in in a very deliberate way, in a, um, a way that's sensitive to their, their capabilities and capacity to um, participate and also give them enough time. So sometimes these approval processes have got very tight timeframes and it makes it very hard for the public to participate as fully as they may like. Okay. I have two, two questions on this. Um, I want to think the, the latter I'll leave for later, but... I guess what's what's your thoughts on so the government the government owns the resources but what what is the the role of the people what does the government owe the people with these resources what's the connection between the people and the natural resources mm. so so this isn't my um, area of speciality but from experience it is providing that hospital in a regional area providing a good quality road and maintaining it uh, the things that taxes and royalties sort of you know, roll into together to support communities with the infrastructure that they need. So more often than not, it's about infrastructure to sustain society. And, that, and that's usually the argument given when there's a choice between, and I might be jumping ahead, but a choice between managing an abandoned site or building a hospital, you know. Do you really want that many million dollars spent on that old site that's only polluting one river? You know, we don't have to worry about that. Over here, we've got this community with high unemployment, high social needs, and also needing a hospital. Uh, their old hospital is um, beyond its use-by date, you know, um, and resources for that hospital. So that is a good point. And no, you're getting to where to where we want to go um, in terms of my reclamation. And so I think I think though that what you just said it kind of lays lays the land of, of where you're coming from, what your thoughts on are. The various the actors and their roles and responsibilities. Um, so now moving more into mine management and proper closure and rehabilitation of the land, could you start off by explaining the current status and the current situation? Give listeners a, a frame of view of, of where we're at in terms of policy and actions on the ground of, of reclaiming and rehabilitating mines. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a huge question. Um, I'd say every, every if you imagine like it's a, I don't know, a running race or something, but every country is in its own place in that, in that position in that world. Um, you know, some, I'll give you an example. Like 
So in Australia, because each state regulates mine rehabilitation and closure, we have what is more like a patchwork quilt than a coordinated and cohesive regulatory framework. Every state, and it's understandable, has, a, has evolved in its own way. They responded to what they needed to do at the time. It's been quite reactive. So they started off with financial mechanisms. So they, there was this early realisation uh, in Australia, sometimes as early as the 70s um, and 60s, that oh, mine subsidence was creating a problem, uh, underground coal mines. We need to have a fund to um, compensate people, fix their houses if they've cracked and so on. So we have that very early example from New South Wales where that happened. And so it evolved in this iterative way, but, but over time those financial mechanisms became broader, like statewide, every mine must have a financial assurance, a bank guarantee, or a uh, they must participate in a mine rehabilitation fund. Again, every, different in every state. But it's based on calculating the costs of rehabilitation within a certain time period, rehabilitation and closure. Um, so it might be a five-year plan. It says, what are you going to do in the next five years? What are your liabilities from those mining activities and processing activities and any, everything that's going on in your site? If you had to close in five years, how much would it cost? And then the most common mechanism in Australia is to have a, a proportion of that as a financial assurance uh, bank guarantee. So recent audits have revealed that, that it's never quite enough, but the, the way they... Uh, assess it is laid down in policy and it's quite specific. Quite often it's an Excel spreadsheet and um, and they have to fill in the cells with their the rehab work. One of the biggest problems though I've got to tell you is, <laughs> is the studies and the investigations and the uncertainties that are exist around closure that need to be carried out along the way. So it's all very well to say how much per hectare to rehabilitate this or reclaim it, um, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to be done. Groundwater studies, understand the surface and groundwater interactions, understand the post-mining land use, all the engagement with stakeholders to agree on the post-mining land use, uh, the design aspects of, of structures that are permanent features in the landscape, tailings dams, waste drop dumps mm -hmm. and so on, which have to be right from the start. We cannot close. You cannot walk away. Like the idea of walk away is quite rare. It's um, difficult yeah. to accomplish. That's bringing up many good points. So, so I kind of want to touch on what, what you ended on there, which was some of the not necessarily always always permanent, but some of the features that we've either left behind in the past uh, due to poor rehabilitation or things that even even with proper rehabilitation that mining leaves behind. Um, and so I think that we all have a familiarity with the idea that mining can have negative externalities. But I mean, you could, could you just list out some of the largest issues that we see with mines closing, whether that's improperly or properly, what are some of the biggest things that they leave behind that, that we need to properly manage? Okay, so I'll just divide them into the on-site impacts as compared with the off-site impacts because there might be a perception that um, all of the impacts are contained within the mining lease, but this is not the case. And, and you know, as, as regulation and uh, understanding of re reclamation and closure in Australia evolved, we went from thinking it was just an on-site matter of soil conservation, keeping soils in place and stopping erosion, erosion. Uh, and then it moved to understanding, oh, these water impacts, whether it's saline water um, overflowing from a pit or um, from spoil piles from, you know, coal mining flowing down a river or acid and metalliferous drainage from uh, metal mines, you know, copper mines, gold mines and so on. So then there was this recognition that contamination and the consequences of mining were borderless. You know, they... You know, get a big enough storm event, get enough 
exposed materials that are inadequately or um, not capped and covered and encapsulated in a timely manner and you've got pollution impacts going beyond the mine. But as, as important but it's almost invisible to an environmental scientist because if you're not looking at the community and you're only looking at those biophysical changes, then you can overlook the community that's nearby, the neighbour, the downstream water user, the irrigator, the person who is using that water to create food for people that live in the cities. And so, so the biggest impact, the biggest single um, problem, I think, for the mining sector, okay, globally, wherever there's water, so we're not talking about deserts, um, it is the fact that contaminants are mobile, so mainly acid and metalliferous drainage. The weathering products of wastes that are brought to the surface sulfide minerals and exposed to oxygen um, create sulfuric acid um, and in the process of producing acid flows they take with them heavy metals into the system so you've got high heavy metal loads sometimes high salinity as well and all of these features of mine uncontained uh, mine runoff uh, and groundwater contamination as well uh, prevents uh, some of the land uses that were existing beforehand or could happen in the in the future um so that's primary production or um i haven't hardly touched on biodiversity yet but that's obviously critical you know in terms of the initial land disturbances biodiversity impacts potentially great or small depending where the mine is and uh and many attempts particularly in western australia um to bring back the biodiversity to reconstruct ecosystems to to get it functioning like it was even if the mix of species is slightly different interesting can, can you expand perhaps on that Western Australia example? Because I'm, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it too. Uh, but can you just expand on some of these impacts in, in your context? Because I do think that a lot of the, the listeners who are familiar with like the Southwest and the Western part of the US, that they're they're likely familiar with like the Gold King mine spill that back in 2016 and the many mine spills that the US has had. Uh, but I doubt that they have the same level of familiarity uh, with some of the issues that you're facing in Australia? They're, they're really quite uh, distinct for mine types and commodity types. Um, I'll give you an example of at one end of the spectrum that is at the easy end of reclamation. And I want you to imagine bauxite mining where there's a thin, there's soils and there might be an ecosystem, a forest above it, and there's a thin layer of soil and then you're into this layer of bauxite which are variable depths but is relatively shallow. So a shallow mining, um, it's more like quarrying in a way, uh, except that it involves mineral processing. It is still mining because of the product, but in a way it's so straightforward there isn't a lot of uh, geochemical change, so there's not a lot of pollution. But the biggest issues there would be the drawdown of the ground, groundwater, um, the drawdown of the groundwater to mine in the first instance, and you could have ecosystems dependent on those um, on that groundwater around the periphery. Uh, of the mine and they suffer while that, that drawdown takes place and then you have to plan for how it's going to recover at the end. Do you imagine groundwater seeping out inside the hill and you've got all these um, kind of rainforest-like um, ecosystems that are dependent on them? It's like the systems that are dependent on a river and a riparian system. You take it away, then how they impact it. So, but that's that's down at the easy end. And we're in Australia, in Western Australia, we have a degree of success in re-establishing forests where the topsoil has not been taken away for too long and it's been brought back or even moved from one pit to another. So because you've got multiple pits, you can take that living layer uh, of uh, substrate and take it across to the new site and um, start building that forest from scratch. So there, 
that's a, a great success story, um, but it is at the easier end of uh, the spectrum for mine reclamation and closure. Now, your question was um, directed to so, you know, some of the complexities. What I, what I did want to say was just sort of group it into four categories, and one is the importance of making the site safe. <clears throat> so in Australia, we say safe, stable, non-polluting and sustainable. Now, they're, they're laden words. They have a lot in them. They sound easy to say and they're very difficult to achieve, but... But, it, but safety, so really important you don't have open shafts so people can fall down or that mm -hmm. anyone could get into and it could collapse on anyone's. Uh, and there's a number of aspects to that and often that means you know, infrastructure is removed and so on. So you don't, in a properly closed mine, you have proper de, uh, decommissioning, deconstruction and the cleanup. So you're leaving the site safe. Stable is um, around the stability of waste dumps and, and for uranium waste, for example, you have to have thousands of years of stability. So they're designed differently to, to other types of mines. But you've got to really think long term because these are permanent features in the landscape. You can also have pit walls that will collapse in, particularly if you think of brown coal and quite soft soils and sediments, um, but not, not hard rock, black coal mines. Um, they're quite different. And if, if a pit, a brown coal mine pit was just to be left empty, the sides would collapse in, the groundwater would come in and push the floor back up. So they have to be left with something in there like water to hold them together to make them stable. So stability matters if you've got a highway next to the mine or houses or a, or a whole township. So that stability is critical because it can just ripple out and create um, cracks and subsidence and landscape changes. So, and it's so with underground mining, it's got to be left stable. And then you have the, um, the non-polluting aspects, which I've already touched on about not having pollution leaving site and sustainable is just a catch-all for making sure that if you've got native ecosystems that they are self-sustaining but they have to be able to sustain themselves if they're out of balance you end up with um, a key species dying and you end up with a paddock of weeds and that's not sustainable if you decide that um, spoil piles once they're revegetated can be grazed then it has to be done in a sustainable way because if it erodes and it fails and exposes those materials so it's a problem um, and sustainable also involves people. Clearly, people are involved in managing it, um, using it, trying to find value, and it's a really long-term proposition. So th the biggest challenge with all of this is the mine. it's not over when it's over. When a mine is finished, it's not finished. I have a few questions. I guess kind of going back to what we were discussing about who, the who's who in this space. Yes. In, in terms of responsibilities, where does it end? Where does the company's liability end? In terms, I'm particularly thinking about sustainability because at, at some point, if the ecosystem reaches a point where it's self-sustaining, but then becomes, for example, if it, if it becomes ranch land and is managed again, you know, that's not really the mining company's responsibility. Yeah. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, no, this is where um, the process of relinquishment, lease, lease relinquishment is, is seen as the end point of the mining company's responsibilities. So they've put up their plans, they've implemented the plans, they've designed, designed for closure, they've accomplished, mm -hmm. they, they, along the way there would have been uh, completion criteria developed, so criteria that meet all of those uh, core objectives around safety, stability and non-polluting uh, and sustainability. So those completion criteria, some of them really kind of easier measure, some are quite difficult and require longitudinal uh, ongoing um, record keeping, monitoring and intervention to verify that they've been met. But in submitting a closure plan or some sort of completion document that the regulator requires, and again, every jurisdiction would be different, 
the government has to come and agree that it's been done to that standard. But it's not as if that just pops up at the end. It's been something that the company's likely to have been or should have been working towards right from the start and the government should have been uh, monitoring and intervening on and uh, approving, uh, rejecting, whatever is needed to help keep the whole closure vision and reclamation on track because it's very easy to deviate, very easy to lose focus on that in the day-to-day running of a mine. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so to sum up, the relinquishment process is when leases are relinquished and that means the legal responsibilities for the mining company at that point cease. But I should just mention residual risk. So uh, some, yes. some jurisdictions in Australia are beginning to think about residual risk and how to fund the ongoing maintenance of these sites. And so residual risk policy is is one. Uh, Trailing liability is another. Chain of responsibility is another. There are forms of uh, legislation that in Australia have sort of cropped up in a reaction to a particular site or operation or region of multiple mine closures. Uh, And it's based on the realisation that, oh, we need um, need to have some funding for this stage. We've only, you know, sometimes the regulations only... address everything up until relinquishment and there's absolutely nothing it's like dropping off a cliff there's no regulatory scaffolding there's no uh no idea what happens after that yet um if you look at the uranium mining you know canada and usa there is this very clear understanding about what is required after mining because they have to be monitored and um, managed for so long and so you have all these institutional controls and they are the legal arrangements, the management uh, arrangements around managing that parcel of land. So at that hinge point, as it were, when leases are relinquished, mm-hmm. there has to be some sort of negotiation around funding and resourcing of that aftercare. And this is where you do find, um, um, you know, perhaps industry, you know, the, the companies setting aside a certain amount of money saying these are the assumptions in our residual risk calculation. but the government will also have a policy that says these are the things you have to think about. So the challenge with all of that is because we're in the early stages of residual risk policies in Queensland, for example, is we don't know if they work. We don't know if there's enough. We don't know if it's going to last long enough. We don't actually know how it's negotiated. We don't know what's left out. Um, but you can imagine that being a bit of a tense time when a mining company wants to leave the site. They Everyone knew that they were going to leave one day and the government's preparedness to um, accept that. And then the government needs to set up a team to manage these sites. So these teams don't exist, you know, until they're funded and resourced and there's actual sites to manage. Um, And this is all separate to the legacy management, I've got to say. So we're just talking about active mines that close in a planned manner in line with policy um, and legislation. We still have all this uncertainty at the uh, post-closure stage that, Regulators are starting to grapple with, but but in a very different way for every jurisdiction. I see, and that, that that brings up a really good point that I, I wanted to discuss with you, and that is this idea of risk. Because, so for your information, I have a background in, in engineering. Um, so for us, risk is a very well defined term in terms of, you know, for example, when you're designing something, you have a certain maximum stress that you design for. And, you can mitigate risk by designing to the, the acceptable level um, of, of stress or load. But that that model doesn't work in terms of a lot of what we're trying to design for in these situations of closure. Um, as you mentioned, like with pit walls or with tailings facilities or with uh, hazardous waste storage, 
there isn't the same type of well-defined design specification. So what I'm trying to get to is what, what is an acceptable level of risk for some of these facilities and some of these pieces of the mine that are permanent even after mining ends? Mm. Uh, first of all, I'll just pick up on um, <clears throat> some of the features you described do have quantitative measures of risk, you know, tailings dam design and um, the, and waste rock dumps, slopes. Um, a lot of erosion studies have been done on slopes so you can model different intensities. And um, so all of that information should be gathered up front. The tailings dam design, well, it has a design life. So what is the design life of that structure? Quite often it's designed for the life of the mine. Let's say it's 50 years and then they expect to close it out. But quite often, and because I've spent a lot of time studying abandoned mines and legacy mines, you go to a site where a mine is closed prematurely and it hasn't been closed out this tailings dam has been designed to leak. That's the purpose of it because the tailings go in and the water drains out and then they'll have a collection pond. So a tailings dam that's been designed for active management cannot be left unattended. So you've got this because you want the tailings to consolidate, you want to go from sloppy low-density tailings to really dense tailings so that you can cap and cover it. But in a particular gold mine that I was doing some work on, you had this under-drainage system that was encouraging the leakage and water was coming out on all sides of the tailings dam as it was not quite designed to do, but it, if it had been operated still and not abandoned, all of that under-drainage would have been directed towards the collection point and then pumped back into tailings in a closed circuit. But because it was abandoned, it just was um, extremely out of control. So... Clearly, it needed to be covered and encapsulated and to stop that through flow of water and coming out the base because it was just polluting the whole environment around it. But you've got to understand uh, when you talk about design and design parameters that everything has a design life. So when we're building permanent features in the landscape, these are really important decisions. And this is where to design something for 50 years that is a permanent feature in the landscape is, is um going to cause problems because it's going to fail at a certain point in time. So that's where the re reclamation comes in and the and, and the design of the reclamation has to be for like hundreds of years or thousands of years for uranium mill tailings. I was trying to get at that point of, of having some of these like permanent features, but I guess would it be fair to say in, in my words that you can separate it almost into two types of design where you have design for active use and then design for reclamation? Yep. I think they're, they're entwined, so you can't actually separate them. Mm -hmm. But if, if a mine that's truly designed for closure from the outset, which is the ideal, and in all the guidelines, the ICMM's guidelines and so on, designed from the outset to close, then that's already been designed in from the beginning. So when they're building those dams, they already know how they're going to close it out so that it's not going to create problems long term. The biggest problem we have in you know, globally is historic mines that started before that was even a thing. The idea that closure was, you know, the last year, and that's when they go, oh, if only we designed that tailings dam differently. Gee, if we hadn't put that waste rock dump across the creek, we wouldn't have all this pollution running down the river. If only we'd asked the community if they really wanted to have this piece of infrastructure left behind. It looks like they didn't want it after all. You know, like, so the engagement process that went into it. And and one, one group of people we haven't really talked about, um, and I, I would like to I'll come back to discussion of risk as a socially constructed thing but i i just wanted to mention the indigenous landowners in many cases who haven't had free prior and informed consent to the mine in the first place because of when it started so fpic is now um, emerging as being more common where you get consent before you mine from the indigenous people or the local um local people 
back then they didn't have a say necessarily in the start of the mine and if they don't have a say in how it's closed then it, there's a there's that just creates more problems so the way of rectifying that is to bring them back in to understand their cultural connections to the place understand um, how closure plans might be developed during the mine life when they can have a say in how it's going to look and there might be certain places in the mine where they should not put a dump a waste dump or a, a piece of infrastructure because it's an important site that has particular meaning to them um, or song lines in Australia is where there's a a trail and a connection to certain places and you don't want to block these and get in the way of them. So it is, it's complex and it's challenging uh, to bring in all those views, but uh, the Indigenous one really highlights the connection to land that a lot of uh, European and colonising people don't have the same connection to places um, and it reminds us that people are going to come back, whether it is the cultural connection there or is it if it's to graze um, cattle, if it's to grow crops, if it's um, to develop a new business, it may be a pit lake and there may be a recreational campground, you know, who knows what. But if you don't have people involved from an early stage having input into it, then the end point is likely to miss the target. I, I, can we take a moment, I think, to expand on um, the Indigenous landowners? Because I, I think I think it's a, a major challenge that miners face around the globe. And to me, I, I find it just a, a very interesting topic to discuss um, because I, th I think it requires us reconsidering our basic kind of model of how how land works, how a lot of things uh, work. And when I say we, meaning a lot of, I guess, non, to say it plainly, non-Indigenous landowners, um, of course, there's always caveats to everything, but um, I guess, can you can you just expand on the cultural and long-term connection that some of these groups have to the land. And to add on to, <laughs> to this exploration, I, I also question if a lot of times, a lot of the indigenous landowners might actually have a, a better understanding of how we can best design for long-term land use, given that in many of these situations, they're the only ones that have been able to have records of how the land has functioned for thousands and thousands of years. Um, mm -hmm. So, all that said, I would just love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so there's, there's parts of, um, you know, North America and Australia where there's been this very strong and continuous um, connection to place and some places where it's been highly disrupted by colonisation. So um, I, I see it as part of reconciliation with those disruptive processes that that we, governments, industry um, professionals, have re-engage, re-involve um, Indigenous people in this. As you say, they have a very long-term view, particularly if they have um, that stronger connection, but nevertheless they still there is a still a need for reconnection and as part of a reconciliation process. So mm -hmm. leaving them out is, is wrong. Bringing them in it, partway through a mine is difficult because certain decisions have already been made and it can be fraught with a lot of conflict, but it's still a better outcome for closure than, than ignoring or excluding them because that just perpetuates the disruption that was you know, started many you know, years ago, hundreds of years ago, whenever. Um, and so I'd like to give you an example, and it's an abandoned mine example, but where the Indigenous people had an active say in how the site would be cleaned up, even though it had been um, sitting there for quite some time, like 20 years, um, it was about 10 years ago, they started a reclamation process. And so the Indigenous people were were fundamentally important 
not only in doing the site inductions so that when the scientists turned up to study things, we were aware of the sensitive sites, which sites were important to women as compared with uh, those that were men's sites. Um, and parts of the induction were only given to women because it wasn't information that could be shared with men. Uh, then it was, it was like a layer of insight on this landscape that we otherwise would not have had. So if we just environmental scientists turn up, we start measuring water and soil and looking at um, salts on the surface where, you know, from water seeping out and drying out on the land. And we take in all those signals and the vegetation and we can see it's covered in weeds in this part, but over here there's some native Then they tell us the stories of the place and then we understand, oh, which species are important to you, which plant species. And, and the project manager on, on this project was particularly visionary because she made sure that um, when all of the contracts that were let for different pieces of work, we all had this connection to the local um, Kanarakan and Warai people. Uh, and the aquatic surveys down the river, um, the Aboriginal people went along with the aquatic ecotoxicologists to look at water quality, water use, because our water quality standards require us to set targets for water quality as part of which the rehabilitation reclamation was geared towards that would meet the needs of use in, in that river. So in that process, we were able to develop, you know, a copper level that was acceptable in runoff from the site and from groundwater uh, and surface waters interacting. But the water leaving the site, we had to set a downstream water quality criteria that was feasible and met their requirements. And so that was done with the Indigenous people explaining this is where we hunt for crocodile, this is where we catch fish, this is where and we haven't been able to use that, you know, 50 kilometres of this river for you know, as long as we can remember, because of the acid and metalliferous drainage. You know, so understanding that history is so vital. That's such a good point. That's a great example. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, and so, in a sense, shifting gears, but still focused on community, a question that would come to uh, mine planners and, and those that are, are designing these structures is what, what level of compromise should they have? Or, or is there a compromise? So, what I'm thinking about is, you know, if you're designing from from start to close the mine, is that going to hurt production? Um, how much how much reclamation is considered enough? Even though that's we always want to shoot for above regulation and for above minimum requirements. At the end of the day, there's there's a point where this becomes unfeasible. Um, and so, I guess first, do you agree with that? And then secondly, if so, what what are your thoughts on? Mm how far is this potentially too far? I think it's true that some mines shouldn't get approval because of their inability to close one day. And um, when I worked in the mining industry and I looked, did a due diligence on uh, with a team of different disciplines, we um, there was a certain site that we agreed it had been started and there was a pilot plant and so on, but it should not should not be acquired by the company because it was going to be very difficult to close and that was because of... Uh, Kind of the imbalance between the value and the liability. So there definitely are instances where the mining industry should hold back and say no, um, and governments as well. But they're difficult. They're difficult decisions, and and they're not always looking in the long term. So they might be a bit too focused on the short term gain and not so much on the long term legacy. This in part is due to the concept of net present value, which devalues, you know, and the accountants use to discount future uh, liability because, well, we don't have to spend it yet and so it's not worth as much as money spent today. And while I understand that concept, there's been a lot of research in um, America uh, by Espinosa and others 
on why we should decouple risk from MPV, because MPV is just so harmful for closure. The, all the assumptions about it basically encourage mining industry and governments to ignore the problems of the future, to ignore that liability at the end, to, because it, the whole process of using discounted cash flow is to diminish the costs in the future and in their mind that means diminished risk. And so if you only consider risk as those things that you measure and quantify, then we get in all sorts of trouble. So what I wanted to come back to was the concept of risk being a collective view on what we want for the future and what we're willing to accept. So when you talk about compromise, it is uh, very much about compromise, but it does depend who's deciding which risks they're going to pay attention to and which risks they're going to ignore. And is it risks to the company? Or is it risk to the community? And they're two different uh, types of risk, but they are often like put together and conflated. And there's research on that as well, that when, when a mine is started up, all the risks they're concerned about are the risks of you know, starting production on time, making sure they've got cash flow, make sure that the, they're designed it so it's efficient and for truck and haul routes and where the waste dumps are going to be located and all of that is all as efficient as possible and not at all thinking about you really need to bring in someone at that point in time say ask all of the curly questions about well how are you going to close this or how why did you put, put that there you've diverted the river what happens at the end are you going to return the river to its pre previous course or is it always going to remain diverted um is it actually designed for a thousand thousands of years because you've only you've done this diversion for you know the operating life but it has to be maintained because it's no longer part of the normal meandering natural flow it's an artificial channel um so the closure person will come in with that lens. It's like a different pair of glasses. And like it can be uh, looked at as if you're just sort of raining on their parade. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to get this mine started. You know, just don't tell us all that stuff. That's just, you know, sad and depressing and you're just being negative. Um, and, but it's actually, you know, the devil's advocate at a large scale and it's absolutely necessary because then you can have a mine that's been really well designed from the start. You know, and I work at a uranium mine, so I know what that looks like. Um, where it, where it was well planned right from the start for how it would end up, and that was with tailings being taken from the tailings dam and put into the mined-out pits, capped and covered, and that mine is now going through that rehabilitation process. But it's interesting because I had 10 years there, and then wherever I went after that, I was kind of disappointed that everywhere everyone's leaving tailings dams that are not going to last very long. They're going to erode and weather and leak. Um, pits with salty water, What? What? who's going to, oh, the cattle might drink it. Well, you know, nobody's done the studies to uh, confirm that anyone wants to send their cattle near that pit. But, you know, there's features in the landscape that are kind of left out of reclamation because the concept of reclamation involved trees and plants. And so pits were ignored for a long time. You bring up many good points. Um, and I guess uh, one thing one thing I think all of the, the listeners would be interested in is how to develop kind of this, this long-term view. Because when I, from, from my outside in view of this. I think that a lot of people can get on board with these ideas. Um, a lot of the people who are doing the, the mind designs and, and doing this type of planning, but I don't, I don't know if they have the, the tools to be able to perhaps reframe their mindset to, to consider these during the design. So I'm wondering on your end, how, how would you recommend people kind of learn more and, and practice this long-term? Yeah, well, I think, um, we touched on it before when you talked about um, Indigenous people and their long connection to land. Well, even if they're not Indigenous people but there's a local community with multiple generations who have lived there, you can also um, 
embrace a long-term view by simply involving them. So community consultation committees, engagement processes and so on that bring the outside in are fundamentally important to provide that long-term view because that community's interests are in the long term. They want the right thing for the environment. So even if the company becomes a bit short-termist in their view and and focused on production and so on, they can that having that community in the room, like during a risk assessment process, for example, participating in a facilitated meeting, they can keep bringing up, well, what about this and what about that? They don't have to be experts in tailings design. They don't have to be experts in waste dump design to ask those questions that need to be answered. Okay, so you have designed this for 50 years. So what happens after that? Uh, can we graze it? How long can we graze it? Can we graze it at the same rate? Can we access this? You know, so they can ask questions that are based on that practical connection to a place. And they will always, regional communities are more likely than anyone else to have a long-term view because it's in their interest to uh, protect their livelihoods, their community, their cultural connections to places, their um, their relationship to the land in, in all its forms and water. So bringing the outside in, I think, bringing communities in. And, and, that's, that's an excellent point. And so... I, I want to be respectful of your time, so I know we're, we're wrapping up here, and I kind of want to end on what we started with, uh, which was the public-private nexus related to natural resources. Earlier on, when, when you kind of gave us the, the summary of where we're at now in terms of mine rehabilitation, mine reclamation, you said that we're highly reactive. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if you have any suggestions for us to become proactive. And with, with everything that we've discussed of long-termism and being able to plan for closure at the start. I'm wondering if you have recommendations for industry, the public, governments, whomever, uh, in terms of, of how, how can we improve, how can we get better? Um, so quite often it's it's about just looking beyond your own backyard. So if, if a jurisdiction in Australia is about to bring a new policy, they might look at what uh, the, the jurisdiction next door did or one in you know Western Australia or somewhere, and they'd say, oh, you've got a guideline, I'll grab that. So sometimes it's... Um, the review is too limited. Um, it needs to be global and it needs to be long-term. So that investment in in understanding deeply what the long-term risks are is something that is is not evident um, always uh, in, a, in Australia. So those, those local reviews can be a little bit too local and, and also think that what's going on in their jurisdiction is so unique that it can't be transferred. So it's about, it's a bit like in, you know, when I did my PhD, you've got to theorise, you've got to get up above the data and see what are those general rules and general patterns and that's what takes us to to look at those broader patterns of, of what the uh, the world bank might be writing about you know that a publication called it's not over when it's over so they recognize it and, and look at those what's going on in the eu about critical minerals and what they expect of the supply chain so they want um, you know sustainability all the way through so countries that are going to participate in the critical minerals boom need to be able to meet all of those criteria not just for the operational phase for managing noise and dust and traffic, you know, all those things that get a lot of attention at the early stage, but in how you leave the site. But the, the, the end point is so ragged and unregulated compared with the upfront approval, we need to strengthen that back end. And so instead of waiting till we get to the end of the mine's life and realise we don't have a residual risk policy and then developing them, you can just go to the uranium sector and look at what they've done for institutional controls that look after them long into the future and if we understand that, I mean, some would say, oh, you can't apply that standard to all mines in Australia. Well, no, but if you've got acid and metalliferous drainage, if you've got contaminating mm-hmm. um, waste products um, that must be contained forever, then you need to apply standards that are and, and methods of managing these sites so that companies can 
be relieved of their responsibilities, but they do leave a, a legacy fund or a manager or some mechanism to manage the site into the future because it doesn't just end there. And society is increasingly pushing back on new minds because they're dissatisfied with how they've been left before. When, when I was looking at in Peru at, at um, abandoned mines in the catchment of Lake Titicaca, it was because that country wanted to develop mining in that catchment and the community had put up signs, we decide, we will decide. If you don't have social licence, if you don't have permission from us, you cannot mine. So we have to understand the relationship between a very inconsistent closure past and our future of mining in an increasingly complex contested landscape where there's many, many needs to be met. I think that's that's a, a really good way to put it, a contested landscape. Wow. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you as, as we end up here. Um, I know in, in, in my past and for mining engineering and, and geoscience, looking at mining, we've never had you've never had a real strong emphasis or, or class on developing strong closure. Um, and for me, it's always been something that I've been confused about personally, why, why we haven't had the same emphasis on, on closure as we do during production. Um, because in, in my perspective, closure lasts for hundreds of years and it's, it's permanent. Whereas production lasts for 20, 30, if you're, if you're lucky. Um, and so to me, that's always been fascinating. And I, I appreciate how much, time and effort that you've put into this subject and, and being able to advise governments, being able to advise companies to be able to, to make better decisions. So that way we aren't continually left with the, the negative externalities of the historic mindsets. Mm. Um, so from bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you as we close out. Oh, thanks very much, uh, Kylan. Can I um, also just commend you on your ability to pick up on these concepts? Because a lot of people, uh, you don't understand that difference between the short and the long term and the, you know, the finite life of a mine and the, and the forever. Uh, and uh, so, you know, well done and thank you for your interest because it is a subject that's not, you know, headlines <laughs> in the newspaper. It's a slow creeping sort of uh, risk that, that permeates uh, the sector and how legacies are left. It's not an obvious thing. It just sort of sneaks up on us. So it's something that does deserve attention. So thank you. Yes, I agree. Well, Dr. Karina Unger, thank you so much for being on the Art Resources Podcast. Take care. Thank you.